Hey there, and welcome back to Future Cities. I'm your host, Stephen Elser. Today's episode is the third and final installment of a series of episodes brought to you by Dr. Mike Chester, a professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment at Arizona State University. In December of 2020, Dr. Chester moderated the Infrastructure and the Anthropocene Forum, which focused on the future of infrastructure from a variety of different perspectives. The conversations from those forums were recorded and have been repurposed for our podcast. If you missed the previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll also include the links to the YouTube videos in the episode description. Without further ado, I'll hand it over to Mike. Welcome, listeners. I'm Mikhail Chester, and today I'm pleased to introduce Professor Ajo Amakudzi-Kennedy of Georgia Tech. When asked what infrastructure are supposed to do, responses, of course, vary dramatically from the mundane, for example, provide water and power, to the abstract, for example, facilitate improved well-being through the delivery of basic services. Of course, both of these are right on some level. But what is often lost is the perspective of the values that we use to design and operate infrastructure systems. In my talk with Aja, she presents an argument to frame and refocus infrastructure with value-focused thinking. As we shift to ensure that infrastructure meet the needs of future populations in increasingly complex environments, Ajo makes the argument that value-focused thinking appears important for helping guide how we think about restructuring infrastructure. Here's my talk with Ajo. Enjoy. I am very happy to be talking to um, Professor Ajo Amakuzi Kennedy at Georgia Tech, who has graciously agreed to um, uh, talk to me about um, value-focused thinking, which is a concept, Ajo, that you have mentioned in passing uh, many times in our conversation. So Ajo has been very involved with uh, the UREX project, with the um, Growing Convergence Research Project. Um, you know, she's very plugged into um, you know, sort of our research networks that have been going on around uh, ASU and Georgia State and, and Atlanta and so on. So, um, Ajo, welcome. And I was, um, in thinking about you, Ajo, over the past few days, I was thinking about the first time I met you, which um, was probably 12 years ago. I don't know if you, you remember this. This was at a... TRB? Um, it was at, the, at a CMU uh, TRB... Uh, dinner, you know, kind of get together thing that, that has been organized every year forever, right? And I, um, I don't remember if I was at ASU or this was uh, prior to ASU, but, um, you know, I, I remember sitting next to you and, you know, we shook hands, hi, you know, it, it seems crazy that we shook hands in this day and age, right? But, uh, you know, hi, uh, you know, we introduced ourselves and then um, I said to you something like, okay, what do you do? And you know, you were a professor obviously at Georgia, uh, Georgia Tech at that point. And uh, you said, okay. Um, and, and the way you said it was, was fantastic. You said something like, okay, since you are this type of person who kind of uh, gets me or has a similar background from like where I come from, I can give you this answer, which is different <laughs> than the way I introduced myself to many other people. And th that really resonated with me. Like I, I remember thinking, Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? There's like this uh, shadow uh, description of yourself that you have um, that's different from the, the general public one. But uh, Ajo, uh, great to have you here. And, uh, you know, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate being here. I've been enjoying the conversations. Um, uh, you know, I 
uh, took away two, two, two concepts I've been thinking about from Cadmilla, uh, talking about relationships, uh, building trust relationships, and, um, and Mary talking about adaptive structures. Those two things I think have, have resonated with me, but I've been enjoying the, the conversations. Thank you very much for having me and uh, looking forward to, to our conversation. Great, and I'm looking forward to talking to you. So um, let's jump in, Adjo. So what, where I'd like to start is kind of this question of, you know, you've been, um, you've been at Georgia Tech for, I think you just said this, is it 20 years at this point? Yes, this is my 21st year. 21st year, okay, congrats. Mm -hmm. um, you. you know, I don't, I don't know if there's any empirical data to uh, back this up, but I feel like, um, you know, uh, academics move more frequently than they have in the past. That you know, this idea of staying for longer um, is uh, becoming less common. I could be totally wrong, but uh, you know, it feels that way. So, uh, you've been at Georgia Tech for 20 years, and maybe you can give us a little bit about your background, kind of where you came from, and uh, I think particularly it'd be interesting to to hear, um, you know, how you sort of uh, came to be focused on. Um, you know, sustainable infrastructure, sustainability in general, you know, as, as uh, you know, you sort of professionally developed. Okay, very good. Um, uh, so so I, I guess I'll start from, uh, I, I was born and raised in Ghana, which is on the coast of West Africa. I, I did most of my schooling there. So um, I was about 17 and then I, I went to one of the United World Colleges uh, to do my sixth form. United World Colleges, um, uh, you know, these colleges that do rigorous uh, international baccalaureate uh, curriculum, but also really focus around the theme of peace and international understanding, fostering that co-curricular work. And uh, there's a reason I bring this up because uh, before I left Ghana, I thought the world was a very big place. It was just tremendously big. Uh, after going to the UWC, uh, and you know, there were students from about 67 different countries, about 300 students. The world seems smaller, okay? I realized that um, we, we were different because we had been brought up to think differently. We had different cultures and, and, and assumptions, et cetera. But at the core, we were very similar too. You know, we were, we were all looking for similar things, uh, you know, to do well in life, um, uh, uh, you know, to, 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 for our families, loved ones, et cetera, to do well and so on and so forth. And in a certain sense, we shared similar values in, 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 in that context. So maybe I'll be revisiting this. So I wanted to throw that there. Okay, from there I came to um, um, in the US. I, uh, I did uh, civil engineering as uh, an undergraduate at Stanford. Uh, the way I came to do civil engineering really has to do with uh, wanting to do STEM, but also wanting to do art. And uh, I remember David Billington's work in uh, one of, I think it's the first civil engineering was I took uh, on structural art and, the, and, and, and you know, the idea that you can have the most aesthetic designs be the most functional. And that was very fascinating to me. Anyway, so that's really what we need as civil engineer. And I did a master's uh, in transportation engineering at Florida International University. And then I went on to Carnegie Mellon to do a PhD um, uh, in infrastructure systems, uh, civil engineering. So why, why did I um, go to grad school? I think you asked that. Um, uh, or maybe you didn't, but uh, let me let me talk about it very briefly. I, I think there was a lot of mentorship there, so I want to also, uh, you know, emphasize and, and advise them uh, there. And uh, and then, why did I end up in, in, in uh, as an academic? Uh, I think a lot has to do with 
Simakneo and Atrokine and others advice him. Some of my parents' advice as well in that domain. Um, but I, I ended up at Georgia Tech in 1999. And um, uh, the, the school chair then said to me, you are going to teach the sustainability course. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I had been thinking about infrastructure systems, infrastructure management, but I, I really hadn't done anything with, with sustainability. And, and of course, I knew the definition in the dictionary. So I, I started, I, I went to study the thing. I would study hours and hours. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I, I went to, that's how I started with sustainability. And, um, uh, you know, uh, um, I think your, 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 your question is, you know, how has my thinking evolved and, and my work evolved um, in this area? So um, I want to, you know, talk about that uh, briefly, but I think you are asking me to condense 21 years into maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes. So I'll talk about five things. Okay, I'll talk about sustainability planning and evaluation, which is where, where I started. Um, and then I also want to talk a little bit about social equity and economic competitiveness, which is where I went next. Uh, and then very, very briefly about resilience, smart cities, and, and, and leadership and innovation, because that's really sort of, uh, maybe not sequentially in a linear manner that way, but that's really generally how I've evolved over, over time. Um, in, in, in this work. And so, you know, when I started uh, at Georgia Tech, uh, those days, my daughter was in the other century, 1999. I, sustainability science, as we know it, I think was an emergent field, okay? I mean, there were not so many uh, uh, um, calls for proposals in sustainability, I knew of, or, or programs that were uh, entitled sustainability. And that. so it was, it was quite new. And I think that, that at that time, uh, the issues were, you know, how do you even define sustainability meaningfully, okay, uh, in different uh, contexts, different communities, and um, how do you then uh, plan for it and start to evaluate it in a meaningful manner? And, and I remember in the literature and, and also in conferences, et cetera, people would, would debate whether it's even a useful concept if you couldn't or you know, uh, come up with a, a definition that everybody agrees on. So that's the kind of context we were creating. I think we've moved beyond that. Um, but in that context, I was, um, uh, I started thinking about sustainability through the lens of asset management, because I was doing infrastructure asset management. But I moved it from just build systems asset management to think about it as a portfolio of assets. Okay, because the more I thought about it, the more I thought, if you think about any community at any scale, well, we can think about towns, cities, countries, whatever the scale, you can think that each of them has a portfolio of capital. Okay, and what do you mean? What do I mean by capital? Well, if you, the, the general definition of capital, you know, a stock of accumulated goods and services that you can then leverage to, to, to create other goods and services of value and so on and so forth. But if we think about the forms of capital, we can think, uh, you know, communities have human capital, they have natural capital, economic, manufactured, right, intellectual technology, uh, uh, built environment, cyber, and so cyber physical. I mean, we can have a long list. Some of these capital we can see with our eyes, some are invisible, but whether we see them or not, they are there. For example, institutions, okay? And all of them create value. They do create value. And so 
um, I started thinking in those terms, thinking about tangible, intangible assets. And um, through that lens, I could define sustainab sustainability and sustainable development from a portfolio capital assets perspective. So this became the, the, the sort of platform in which I, I started to think. And, and you know, the, the, the general definition uh, that I was operating with then is, is, is sort of the continuing development of human and other types of capital of interest to us, right? Within the constraints of all the other capital necessary for this continued development. So we could say to any, any, any entity, hey, listen, you have a portfolio of capital. Um, you do what you want with it. Create the kinds of value you want with it. So long as you leave it in a state so that the next generation can come and do the same. So that is the intergenerational uh, uh, piece. But if you look at it intra-generationally, then you can say the same, you can make the same arguments and say, well, do it in a way where there is com comparable value that you are creating right across different populations. So that, 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 that became the, the lens uh, through which I operated. And then we could think about strong and weak sustainability, which were concepts then, which simply said, listen, you cannot take uh, you know, naturally uh, occurring capital and treat it the same way as you treat derived capital, which is man-made capital. Uh, because guess what, you can't, you, you, you really cannot create, uh, uh, you know, the natural forms of capital uh, that readily. So if you're going to use it, use it, you know, in, 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 in ways that uh, sort of respect the rates of regeneration and, and so on and so forth. So uh, with this kind of context, we could collect data then. We could define it for local communities uh, uh, what their priorities were in terms of um, uh, the different types of capital they had we could collect data, okay? And, and, and maybe um, we, we, we couldn't collect all, all the data in all the different sectors, but at least conservatively, what we could see and what we could measure, we could collect. So we started uh, you know, looking at data from a, a, a range of sources and collecting data on human capital, uh, life expectancy, you know, those kinds of, uh, and then uh, uh, you know, ecological footprint for the, the ecological piece, economics. So we collected that capital uh, uh, types of, of data and started doing capital accounting, right? And at that time, the triple bottom line was emerging. Okay, so it's economy, uh, environment, and society. But it doesn't have to be a triple bottom line. It can be a quadruple bottom line. If that's, the, if, if, if that's what a community, or a quintuple bottom line, right? And so on and so forth. So, but essentially, if we take a triple bottom line, and then out of that, uh, we can start to, depending on how we scale it, if we, if we take a nominal scale of high, medium, and low, uh, you know, we cut it in different places and are, are explicit about what we are doing, then some typologies start to form up, fall out, right? You can have communities that have very well-developed, maybe human capital, but they've done so at the expense of environmental capital, okay? Um, uh, or some may have uh, you know, very strong, triple bottom line capital. Others may have very weak on all fronts. So the whole concept of a sustainability threat or risk and a sustainability opportunity started to emerge where you could look at uh, entities and say, hey, you, you, you can see some static footprints depending on what you're looking at. If you're looking at the triple bottom line, you can visualize it very nicely. And, 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 and you can see frontiers of the efficiency and effectiveness start to, you know, um, uh, emerge and that tells you something about the best practices 
at a particular time statically. So you can, you can, you can learn from those best practices. Um, and then you can also think about dynamic footprints, the rate of change of these capital over time, rate of change with respect to other capital, so capital efficiencies. Um, and, and the capital efficiencies, perhaps we put a, a more faith in than we should because of Jevons paradox, they don't tell us too much, right, about sustainability. But essentially, we could do these kinds of things. And so I think that sort of rolled us on uh, to feel we had a, you know, a, 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 a domain that was more defensible in which we could operate, okay? And so I kind of went along those lines. I worked with people like Jotun Kesti, Meleki Kayesi, and several students, et cetera. Um, and we applied some of these concepts. We look at, looked at sustainable footprint comparisons for different metro areas, different countries, et cetera. And in our minds, you could use these to start to generate portfolios of projects, right? To address the threats, leverage the strengths to address the threats and evolve forward. Um, so th th those, th those are the kinds of things we're thinking about, you know, the first several years. And then I got involved in the um, integrated network of social sustainability. Now that is a, that was an NSF um, uh, sustainability research network. And um, I'll tell you that my interactions with uh, the folks in, in, in that research network challenged my, my views about social equity. Okay, I took some field trips in one of the INSS conference and uh, I understood that there are significant disparities and we, we, we really have to treat social equity maybe a little in a little more depth than we are doing. So, so that, that's sort of moving me to, to, to a, a, another phase, which I want to talk about a, a, a little bit. And it's the whole idea of um, a social equity and economic competitiveness. And um, in the literature, at least the literature I've seen, that those two are not married too well, right? When you see social equity, uh, it's talking about distribution or distribution of resources, but never talking about the advancement of, of the economy simultaneously. And, and I think when I look at many of the meetings I have been to, they are, it's almost as if they are different groups that operate. And perhaps they are, they, are, they, are, they, are, they are domains where both are talked about soon simultaneously, but uh, the question that some of the questions I started asking, uh, you know, can social equity and economic competitiveness be advanced simultaneously? Because they, sometimes you talk to different folks, there's a certain sense, maybe it's, it's not so explicit, sometimes ex explicit, that you do one at the expense of the other, okay, sometimes. So, so that was one question. And then the other question was, um, you know, uh, well, do more equitable approaches, and I'm, I was doing this through the lens of transportation, where you, you know, come uh, with lower rates of economic growth and vice versa. Okay, so, so I, I started working with some folks who work in institutions from the, from the School of International Affairs, and, and, and we spent some time studying the transportation systems of three different countries. Okay, and um, they are institutions over the past 50 years, 50 to 70 years. And then we also looked at their, um, their transportation systems and we looked explicitly at how they were addressing equity, the whole concept of equity. And, um, and, and at least three, three approaches 
you know, I, I fell out of that. Um, one was avoiding disproportionate distribution of benefits and burdens. Okay, the other, the second one was creating economic growth and periodically correcting or the disparities, okay? And the third one was largely application of a, an equitable decision-making process. So they were quite different, okay? And then we collected data uh, to really study the evolution of wealth creation in a, in, a, in a broad sense and distribution over this time period. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some graphs here and essentially plotting these graphs are plotting uh, GDP uh, against Gini coefficient for those three different contexts. And they tell different stories, okay? Um, and so in the places where there, were intent, there was intentionality, okay, about um, incorporating the equity in, in, in the transportation system development and, and transportation and infrastructure are really enablers. They are enablers of wealth. They, create, they help create wealth, access, uh, you know, uh, to basic goods and services, to jobs, to healthcare, and, and so on and so forth. So then in that same token, where they are less available, you can see also they, they, they retard the, the development of wealth in, in a certain sense, in a broad sense. And so, you know, we, we see uh, that in places where, uh, uh, with this, this first small study, and the, and the paper is actually under uh, review, it hasn't been published yet, um, that we, we, we see that um, where there is an intent to create social equity and advance economic comp competitiveness. When you look at the data, that's what's happening, right? The Gini coefficient is going down, GDP is going up. Where there is no definite intent, you don't see it in the data, right? And it's almost like that, what do you expect? Of course, if you look at inputs and processes uh, and, and you have some intent around those inputs and processes, you expect to see them in outputs and outcomes, right? But it was, it was, it was also, a revelation in a certain sense, because um, what it said was that, yes, number one, yes, you, 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 can, you can create both, both simultaneously, intentionally, and one doesn't necessarily have to come at the expense of the other. And I think on a, on, on a very uh, sort of intuitive level, if you think about even families, let's take families as an example, uh, and, 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 and you know, arguably they are, they are, they are um, you know, uh, in different cases, but hardly does anyone who can afford it have three children or four children or, or two and say, hey, listen, I'm going to educate these two a little better than these intentionally. People don't do that, right? Because you know that by educating them all, uh, you are creating wealth and you are creating resilience, fiscal resilience uh, 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 for, for the family at large and, 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 and so on and so forth. So, so certainly one of the things we, we, we recognize out of that uh, work is that you can do both and one doesn't necessarily have to come at the expense of the other. But actually what happens is if you can really create both simultaneously, then you also create resilience for the region or the community, okay? So, and then very interestingly, you know, we could also see some relationships between the different types of capital, right? So we looked at institutions. So we, we, we mapped those institutions to the built environment capital that came up because institutions do shape built environment capital, right? 
and then built environment capital, transportation, energy, water, housing, etc. Also enable socioeconomic capital. If you invest right in, in those, then you see that you see the outputs and outcomes as well. Uh, but the thing that was missing wasn't that we couldn't see, was, was uh, uh, well, you can't see uh, institutions, certain, they are invisible. Uh, and, and maybe you, you can't see socioeconomic capital per se, you see evidences of it. Um, but they, they are all assets nonetheless. But the thing that was driving all of them, you could extract, was values, right? If you said there's, there, there are going to be some values and in decision maker values and intentionality around creating social equity, then you would see it in the institutions very explicitly because there's intentionality. And then when you go to the built environment, you would see that if you look for it, if you just, just didn't look at it, uh, infrastructure as a, a physical, but you looked at it holistically and also across time, then you would see, you would see those values propagated. And likewise, you would see those values uh, in the socioeconomic uh, realm. And so the whole idea of values, very important. They are invisible, but very, very important assets. Okay, so I think this is what this uh, sort of thinking has brought us to. We are thinking more about it there. And simultaneously, um, uh, you know, the other things we, we are thinking about now, resilience, certainly we have to think about resilience when we think about sustainability, because resilience has now become a threat, right? A threat to sustainability. And if you look at um, uh, the ASCE, uh, the five criteria that ASEC envisioned tool, which is a sustainability rating tool, but I think it's a planning tool, as um, you know, the, the triple bottom line are there. Quality of life, uh, economic capital is called resource allocation, natural world relates to the environment, and they have climate and risk. So that's, that's there. And then they have leadership. And I think leadership is also critical uh, because it really tells us that maybe we uh, we, we are going on uh, paths that have been unbeaten. We, we, we are, we are unprecedented scenarios we are going to face and we are going to have to innovate our ways uh, through them. And then finally, um, the other thing, you know, we started thinking about is, is the concept of smart, you know, in, as in smart cities, smart infrastructure, etc. And uh, the idea there is that um, uh, uh, you know, when we look at, at least if you look at some of the literature on smart, you see that it, the smart tends or seems to apply more to technologies or the physical or non-human element of the system than the human element of the system. And uh, I, I think that is uh, maybe an opportunity for us uh, 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 to, 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 to refine the definitions of smart because if we are talking about systems that have humans and non-humans, and the adjective smart relates to the non-human part of the system, I think we are in for some surprises in terms of what we expect the systems to do. And we can look at some historical examples and we'll see that. And so, um, you know, when I, whenever I talk about this, I think of an example somebody gave me from uh, Dubai. I, I've never been to Dubai, um, but, uh, uh, you know, someone told me when they, when they visited Dubai and they wanted to take a trip, uh, they could plan out the trip in real time with multiple modes and plan and then get real time information on what their carbon footprint is, uh, you know, how long it's going to take and how much it's going to take. So, so in other words, a range of indicators of, of importance to them. So if we, have, if we start to think in value focused ways, 
then can we build systems so that they give us information on the things we care about in real time and allow us to interact with the system as we make decisions uh, to, 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 to enhance, I'm not going to use the word optimize intentionally here, but to enhance those values um, uh, in, in the system in, in, you know, individually and collectively. To me, that would be a more smart system. Yeah, so I think these are some of the things uh, that we have been thinking about. That's awesome. Thanks for the, the overview. Um, you know, years ago, I was involved with um, a company that was developing an augmented reality app. This was probably 10 years ago. So it was the early stages of, of augmented reality, um, where you could hold up your phone in, let's say, a marketplace, a grocery store, anything like that, and it would recognize the products and give you the carbon footprint of the product, right? Wow. And I think that app is still around. And I think it's been uh, significantly developed from uh, where I helped them get it going. So Ajo, you um, uh, you mentioned a lot of things. So so lots of my wheels are spinning. But you know, one of the things I, I now recognize, or, or I'm starting to make some connections on, um, given your background, is uh, the the sort of capital approach. So so you sort of thinking about um, capital as capital is sort of like these building blocks of a society, right? In various uh, unit list forms or something like that, right? Maybe they have units, some do, some don't, something like that. But um, that seems to come from your expertise in asset management. Is that reasonable to say? Right? I, think I, I, I think that's very, very reasonable to say okay. because I think that's that was my baseline for thinking about sustainability when there were no, not too many frameworks to operate with, right? And so part of, I was intentional about wanting to find a framework that is defensible, that can help me explain some of these things. And, and it came from that, that definitely did. In yeah. fact, when I when I went to, when I started out as a, an assistant professor, I said, I want to study portfolio theory. And you know, portfolio theory is an old theory. I mean, in some, to, to some extent, I think aspects, aspects of it are, are maybe outdated, but it's, it's, it's focused on fiscal capital, money, financial capital. But I, I, you know, there were many things about it that intuitively I felt to translate to uh, thinking about capital holistically, right? But I think that certainly came from uh, my background in infrastructure asset management. Yeah. So one other uh, comment that you mentioned, so smart associated with technology. I mean, I, I would generally agree with you. I think that's the the way that it has gotten off the ground. Um, you know, we generally associate smart with physical things like. Um, hardware and software, you know, I, I tend to think about smart as uh, a set of processes that improve cognition. Um, and I think you were kind of getting at this and what you were saying. Um, cognition for people, but I think also increasingly for software. Um, and I think that you can sort of think of that sort of smart capability as being one enabled by physical technologies like sensors, you know, that, that you know, and we now have accelerometers on our body that we didn't have before, right, in cell phones. Um, you have uh, software that is making sense of things, um, you know, without human intervention. And then you have people, obviously, that are not only receiving the data, but are also interacting with those systems. And, and to me, the ultimate goal of SMART is cognition. Um, you know, when, when I was talking to Thad on Monday, right, this, um, this notion that, you know, a lot of times we, uh, or sorry, when when it came to infrastructure, I think that there was this this sort of um, 
acceptance a long time ago that infrastructure have, uh, you know, civil infrastructure in particular, have a lot of technology in them. And that is the domain of engineers. So infrastructure is, is about technology. It's about engineering, right? When it's about everything under the sun, right? I mean, it, every discipline you can imagine probably has something to say or has some stake in infrastructure. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I really should add, it's not only that they, they have some stake, it's interesting. Usually, if you're working with folks um, in other disciplines, I have found, I mean, in my experience, um, they may, and you ask, you hear a question asked about infrastructure, uh, they will give an answer, unless, you know, maybe it's, 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 it's uh, you know, intentionally supposed to be interdisciplinary, but they think the answer is either institutional or economic. They, 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 that's whichever discipline they are grounded in, that's where they think the answer is. So I, I think in general that that's, 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 that's really my experience working with folks. And, you know, sometimes, so sometimes I, I, I jokingly say, you know, if you ask an engineer, they'll tell you it's an engineering, the solution is an engineering one. But the, the, the point is that it's all of the above, right? Yeah. But, you know, I wonder with SMART if we have um, sort of started off that, uh, that space of, of study, you know, in the past 10 years, whatever you want to call it, that field. Um, largely associating it with the domain of technologists, so you know, computer scientists, electrical engineers, you know, that sort of thing. Where, where of course, it has you know implications society wide across all domains. So, you know, maybe we should all decide smart is the domain of you know the sociologists or something like that. Right? It would have a very different interpretation if we did that. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I think of maybe we can even just look at how um, uh, you know societies and, and, and humans have interacted with the transportation system and um, you know induced demand and, and 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 human behavior not always necessarily being what we assume to be. And and so I think yes maybe we, we can say we, we bring it to the sociologists but I think it should be for everyone that if that if we build infrastructure systems and we, we, we know humans are going to interact with it. I think we've, we've gotten to a point where we can, we can start to think in more uh, structured and systemic terms and, and about this interaction and also factor it into the, the modeling and thinking we do. Uh, and because we've learned from the past that not doing that uh, does not help us get closer to the intended outcomes. So Aja, you mentioned uh, you've, you sort of, uh, framed value-focused uh, concepts or value-focused thinking with us. So I want to kind of pivot now to infrastructure and ask you, um, how do we apply value-focused thinking to infrastructure? What does that mean? Um, but not just infrastructure, right? Infrastructure and, and community development or communities in general. Yes. So so I learned about value-focused thinking, oh, I want to say maybe a little over 10 years ago, I, um, uh, from Ralph Keene. He wrote the book Value-Focused Thinking. Okay, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, I served with Ralph Keen on the uh, board on infrastructure and the constructed environment, the National Research Council for, for, for several years. And you know, essentially, the way he talks about it is, is, is making the values in any decision context explicit. Okay, making them explicit and then using that information. Um, uh, to frame your objectives explicitly, um, to uh, create decision opportunities. Okay, if, 
if there are no decision problems, sometimes there are decision problems. That's why you are making the decision in the first place. You come across a problem and you say, okay, we need to decide what to do and then you generate alternatives. Um, but if, 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 if there are, there's a decision problem, that's fine. If not, if you want to create a decision opportunity, which distinguishes from a decision problem, there's no clear problem sitting, staring us in the face, but given the values we have and want to promulgate, we can create a decision opportunity, okay? And use those values within that decision opportunity. And so he, he says, if you do that, then you, you, and before you start to create alternatives, then you are likely to create alternatives that either solve that problem that's existing while advancing the other values in your value portfolio, uh, so to speak, right? Uh, and if you operate in that way, then you are constantly going to be, you know, advancing your value. So the opportunity cost of missing some values just because you happened up upon a problem and didn't think of a lesson. You know? So uh, uh, it seems to me we can use that kind of thing across the board, life cycle of, of, of infrastructure decision making. Uh, visioning, planning, uh, value-focused planning, value-focused uh, uh, design. Uh, of course, and when we come to performance monitoring, we must make sure that we are capturing it all. So, so we are always bringing the values to the forefront. It's not that they don't exist. Sometimes they are hidden in the functioning. And if, if, if we bring them to the forefront, then I think even the way we evaluate, the, the evaluation function will have to have value measures that reflects you know, the breadth of our, our, our value. So, so I think that's how it can be applied. Okay, I think there's, it's, it's, it's an intentional kind of approach where you make the values explicit in decision-making uh, and then you carry through with it and it's a constant thing. And you're not only waiting for problems uh, to show up before you start to engage in that kind of uh, uh, decision, uh, 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 moving, moving forward with decisions. You can just create decision opportunities with, 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 with saying, hey, we want to advance this value. There's no clear problem staring us in the face. So, so I think this is how it can be applied. Sorry, I had to unmute myself. So the, um, you know, it's, so we've talked about this concept a few times, like over the past few days that, um, in civil engineers or maybe engineers at large have these toolkits, right? And these toolkits largely come from the, you know, university training or on the job training. And, and these tools probably emphasize a particular set of goals and priorities, right? There's an implicitness to them and, and there's probably a lot there, right? But they probably emphasize certain sets of goals that, um, uh, may not, right, we could say, be in line with things like equity, for example. Um, so um, when you are advocating, like, you know, this idea that, you know, you have to start by making your values explicit, I like that a lot, right, because I wonder if, um, you know, civil engineers or engineers at large start with these tools, right, and these tools um, probably do have values that are associated with them, but they may not be the the values that we want to be emphasizing today. Something along those lines. Does that sound? Uh, does that sound right? Yes, I, I would say that, and I would also say that, and um, if we think about this further, then, and we look at different communities, 
maybe the values we want to emphasize, um, we may not emphasize all the values in the same way for every community. Does that make sense? It depends. It depends. So if, if we have homogeneous communities, then maybe it doesn't matter too much. But if we, if we agree that we have non-homogeneous communities, and in some cases, they are underserved communities, um, you know, uh, that have, are more vulnerable in certain ways because of the way infrastructure investments have occurred in the past and so on and so forth. Then, yes, that, that's exactly the point, that we need to be very uh, clear about what the values are, which ones we are, uh, you know, elevating and applying for different contexts in time and space, okay? If we all agree that certain values are important, so that if we say, for example, everybody must have comparable standards of mobility and access. That's a value, okay? And if you give me any community, I can spend a little bit of time and tell you, do they have comparable, right? We could do that. That's something that's objective. We can do that. Uh, so, if we say, well, uh, maybe we are looking at um, some context and we say, well, no, we, we don't see that, that. Then we can say, well, we need to elevate this value. And so that is going to be propagated in the evaluation uh, uh, tools we use, right? It should be part of the factor in there and so on and so forth, that the vision, the vision, the objectives, et cetera. And, and then we move things forward in that way. Audrey, I wonder, can I play the devil's advocate for a minute? Um, you know, in this day and age of ideological polarization, right? Somebody might say, well, I don't think that everybody should have the same rights or access to mobility. I think, um, uh, right, access to mobility must be earned, right? And, and it's okay if some people don't have it, they just need to earn it. Um, you know, can, is there, you know, is there a like common set of values, you know, that we could even, you know, start to sort of, you know, overlay on, on our decision-making processes? Yes, so um, I, I will answer that question in two ways. The first one is, I'll just say, what's the definition of public, right? Because we talk about public infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And if you go to, if you look in the dictionary book for the definition of public, it says of or concerning people as a whole. So I think if we are talking about public infrastructure, then certainly we can say that, uh, I mean, some may go as far as to argue you have to have equal mobility. I don't know how we measure that. So I don't talk in those terms, but I say we need to have comparable uh, access, levels of access, comparable levels of mobility over time, over time, right? Does that make sense? Because guess what? These comparable, uh, these uh, levels of access, levels of mobility, um, and so on and so forth, for all the other infrastructure, they translate into wealth creation. I mean, you can do the influence diagrams. It, it has, it generates socioeconomic capital. So if I look at one community that has limited and has had limited access to mobility for a very long time, certainly if you look at, it's difficult to demonstrate causation, but correlation, you see the correlation there when you look at socioeconomic measures. So that's the first answer I'll give. I'll say, let's look at what, what does public infrastructure mean? Um, and I think that, that the point we should make is we can advance uh, mobility and access uh, for all while advancing economic competitiveness. It actually comes as a matter of fact. We are not separate. You know, we don't stop to advance mobility and access for this community at the expense of, no, it doesn't, it all comes, because once you do that, you are also 
advancing you know, to socioeconomic capital. Then the second one, I guess because we are civil and environmental engineers, I would say let's go to the ASC code of ethics, right? And if you have been uh, uh, looking at the ASC code of ethics, I think in the past few years, it's definitely not, uh, there, is the, the, there is now an eighth canon on social equity. So I'll say it is really the ethical thing to do according to the profession at this time, okay? But I think it's not just that it's equitable. You can really, if you want to do an, a, a study, you can do a study to see what are the impacts of uh, advancing social, so, uh, social equity on economic competitiveness, right? On social quality of life and so on and so forth. The same way you can do it for families. You see, you see that the outcomes are, I mean, you, you want thriving communities, places you like to be, are not scared, etc. You want to advance these things. And so I, I, uh, those to me are the answers. You know, there's, a, I mean, I think that there is, a, I mean, I appreciate those answers. I mean, there's, I would argue a, um, a challenge that we face as infrastructure professionals in um, how people um, at this point sort of interpret the purpose of infrastructure systems within the context of, of serving the public. I mean, I think that that perspective in many ways has been lost. Um, you know, I think that there's, again, this, this narrative that, um, you know, maybe it's been there forever, I don't know, um, that, you know, we can privatize infrastructure and it'll operate more effectively, right? I think we've just lost um, uh, the ability in many ways to communicate how infrastructure about serving public value um, not about creating market value. And there's, um, you know, many implications to, you know, framing it on, on uh, you know, along those dimensions, right? One of which is, you know, th this, this di discussion that I've had with, with so many people on, um, you know, transportation in particular, right? Where transportation has a derived demand. Um, transportation doesn't make money. Um, you know, you, you can count on, on one or two hands the number of public transit systems in the world that make money, that are profitable. Your car doesn't make money, right? Um, the value is what you get at the end of the trip, so to speak, not of the actual transportation itself. Um, when it comes to water, you know, in the United States, right? We, uh, we don't pay for water. Uh, we don't pay for molecules of water. We pay for uh, the conveyance of the water, the treatment of the water, right? We have these sort of, um, complicated rights management schemes that say, you know, so many billions of gallons of water um, are, are um, allocated to one place versus another, um, they're sort of just given away, whereas the actual uh, molecules of water themselves are not something we pay for like we might with, uh, you know, wood or, you know, fuel or, or something else. So um, I think there's a, a really good opportunity to, you know, rethink, um, you know, how we communicate what infrastructure is about um, that, you know, is not part of the common discourse anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, and I agree with you, but I'm, I'm thinking about these uh, things you're saying. I think uh, certainly if you think about transportation in the context of a market, um, uh, so perhaps uh, we are thinking about alternative delivery systems, right? This is what you're thinking about. Uh, we, we turn, we turn uh, uh, something, uh, you know, a system over to be built, operated, and transferred, and etc. Even if 
we do, when, we, when that happens, you notice that the public sector maintains the standards, right? Because it's public infrastructure. Yeah. So, um, and, and I struggle with the concept transportation doesn't make money. Because I go back to, you know, the 50s before we had the interstate highway system. And I look at people trying to cross from New York, right, to uh, uh, San Francisco, and you, you saw how long it took them to cross. And then you look today at it, transportation, it creates money. It just, we, we haven't figured out how to measure it. I think it does. I think if you look at it in a, in a full scope, and of course, some of the, the value or the benefits are intangible. But, you know, there's this uh, saying that I like, that not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. I think it applies. You know, I think it's been attributed to uh, Albert Einstein or somebody, but, but in that, I think if you look at the world pre some of these major infrastructure systems that we take for granted today, or may, maybe not so much for granted, but they are part of the, you know, the, the whole, the, the fixtures that we see. Uh, if you look at before and after, you can certainly say that the, uh, you know, the, the economic and, and quality of life impacts have been tremendous. And if you did a benefit cost analysis and did it well, I, I believe you will say it generates a whole lot, uh, money included. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you when, when you look across, you know, all of society, right? What it enables, you know, certainly um, the, the value is there, but um, the activity itself, right, is, is uh, uh, a means to an end. Is, yes, I agree. I agree fully. Um, so, Aja, you've mentioned uh, education. Yes. I know you are uh, passionate about education and uh, innovating in education. Um, where do you think we are in terms of, you know, education today as it comes to infrastructure and where do you think it is that we need to go? Yes. Um, right. So, you know, maybe I'll start with, you know, what are some of the, um, some of the, the, the biggest challenges we have? Uh, with infrastructure today, maybe. And then I can talk a bit about education. So um, I, I think, um, of course, depending on who you ask, you get different answers. I'll give you five. I, I think learning from the past is one of the challenges we have. I think we need, uh, I don't know, maybe it was uh, uh, Shoshana Sachs who said we are ahistorical in, in the first uh, talk that you had um, with Pat. Um, and I think that's true. I think maybe to some extent, and all of us, I, I think I'm, you know, I, I should learn more about uh, the history of, 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 of infrastructure development. Why? Because I think infrastructure, if we do that, we, we, we learn lessons that allow us to negotiate the current challenges we have, uh, while also understanding how far we've come. I mean, I'm, I was just reading uh, the book that you and, and, and Sybil uh, Derebo have just put out Urban Infrastructure Reflections for 2100. And I'm looking at Joel Tart's uh, piece in there. And he talks about, you know, uh, what, how infrastructure has evolved in the 19th and 20th centuries. That sort of temporal depth, I think if you have it, uh, you approach the current problems differently and perhaps also think about the future differently. Okay. So, I mean, we are looking at climate change. It looks like we have an existential threat currently. Um, I think one of the questions to ask is, uh, there were many disrupt disruptions and, and significant challenges in the past uh, as infrastructure evolved. How, how, how were they uh, addressed? 
right? What were the lessons learned that can be applied to today? And if we think our challenges are very significant today, uh, do we think 100 years from now, right? Uh, and I don't know if you've dropped off mic. Uh, do we think 100 years from now, oh, there you are, uh, you know, in 20 or whatever, let's say 20, 2135, the year 2135, people will look back at the challenges we have today if we are still here, as you would say, and say, oh man, these guys had such major unsurmountable challenges. I don't know. I don't know that that's what they will say. Because I'm here sitting here in 2020 in the, in the comfort of my home with my heat and I have access to a nice interstate where I can do different things. I think when the folks were thinking about building that interstate, it was a major challenge to them, right? So, so I, I think that's sort of, that, that my point is that temporal depth, it, 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 it is missing and it's necessary, okay? Um, and then of course we've talked about uh, changing the way we think about infrastructure. I think we have to, we can't think about it only as physical anymore. We have to think about it as cyber physical, we have to think about it as you know institutional, physical. I mean, it's just it's just a, a, a quite a big thing. It's a mechanism, so some organism that has all these capital elements. And I think if those who really realize that uh, and and take advantage of that will have a competitive advantage. So I think that should find its way into uh, uh, education. Um, uh, of course, we have to think about how to adapt. Uh, to climate change, but as simultaneously how to mitigate, right? Uh, if you look at transportation, I think transportation, the US EPA has said that 28% um, of the greenhouse gas emissions uh, in, the, in the past year have been from transportation, uh, perhaps the, the, the most significant. I don't know where I have, you know, more, when I hear about resilience and adaptation for transportation, it is more a, a, you know, or re transportation resilience, it has been leaning, it appears more to, toward adaptation. But here's a huge opportunity for mitigation, which really is, 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 is going to, you know, hit resilience in a more sub substantive way. So there's a huge opportunity cost if we are not doing both. So I think that has to find its way. Um, you know, uh, we talked about putting the human in smart. And, um, uh, you know, so, so these are some of the things I think uh, that we have to uh, we have to be thinking about. Um, I think engineers have to become more comfortable in normative spaces. Uh, what do I mean? That, that they, they should be able to articulate the values underlying the decisions they are making, um, um, look at trade-offs, negotiate um, uh, uh, pathways that they think uh, are more beneficial. You know, I don't think engineering has to be a normative, right? I think we've passed the stage where we, we can afford to do that. And so it's good to see that the ethics, ethical codes are also evolving, um, uh, you know, accordingly. And certainly, I think that um, uh, we should be able to achieve equitable infrastructure because it is it is really a, a foundation for uh, for many things. Uh, and 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 if infrastructure is public, um, then uh, certainly we want public infrastructure to give comparable access uh, over time. Um, Ajay, there's a, there's a key, uh, great question that has popped up um, from Matt, which we'll come to in a, a little bit here on uh, the concept of education and transforming education. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, yeah, I mean, Ajay, you've said a number of things, but you know, let me, let me uh, that I could respond to, um, but let me, uh, since, since we're at the hour, uh, there's a couple more questions I wanna get to with you. So 
uh, let me just jump to those. So, you know, while we're at it, um, what does the civil engineer of the future look like? You know, I, I think it's it's interesting to think. I mean, given the perspective that you you have, um, you know, talking about 20 years ago, you know, introducing some sustainability to Georgia Tech CE, um, but also, you know, what you just said, the importance of, of um, understanding history, right, in, um, you know, where we go in the future. And, and you know, I will point out to um, the uh, conversation yesterday with Mary, where she was outlining uh, some of the uh, characteristics of, of a complex versus complex system. And, and one of those characteristics is, uh, sorry, complex or a complicated system. One of those characteristics is components have history. There is history to, um, you know, some of the subsystems and parts of the system that, you know, if acknowledged or if not understood, um, you know, can create lots of interesting dynamics that, you know, make the system do things that you don't expect. And I think that's very much the case uh, with us. So, um, where do we go from here? Like, are we, you know, are we as a, let's say as a discipline civil engineers and, and uh, you know, on the right track, are we moving fast enough? But, but also I wanna recognize that, you know, there's lots of um, non-civil engineers, non-engineers, right? And you, you know, a lot of them on the, the talk today. So, you know, I often say infrastructure professional, professionals more broadly. And I think, you know, that space, like, are we, are we on the right track? What should we be doing differently? Okay. Well, um, you know, uh, let me start with the, 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 I'll start with the vision that the American Society of Civil Engineers had, and now it's funded. Okay, so they put out a, a early in 2000s, they put out a vision for civil engineering in 2025. Uh, it has about five, five uh, major areas. The first one they said engineers, civil engineers, well, they said civil engineers are entrusted by society to create a sustainable world. So that's nice to see that there and enhance the uh, global quality of life. Then, so they talk about uh, engineers being planners, master planners, designers, constructors, operators of societies, economic and social, and that is standard, you know that. But then they also talk about master stewards of the natural environment. And then the third, they talk about master innovators and integrators. And what do they mean by that? Of ideas and technology across public, private, and academic sectors. When I think of you, uh, Mike, sometimes I think of you as an integrator, because some of the things you were doing, even in this uh, speaker, Series, I think you know, bringing Mary Albion from where uh, where she is and trying and integrating her thinking, etc. So I think yes, we have to do more of that. Um, and then the fourth one, we talk about master managers of risk and uncertainty caused by natural events, accidents, other threats, uh, right? So we that that's absolutely essential. And then of course they talk also about leaders uh, in discussions and decision shaping. Uh, public and, and environmental infrastructure policy. I think we need to do all of the above in tandem with other infrastructure professionals. Okay, and um, uh, there are there are a couple of documents I want to reference uh, uh, very briefly. The first one is a, a report uh, from the 2019 ASC Education Summit. So that was that just came out um, last year, and it talked about four things. Four things that need to be done. Um, in, in civil engineering education. Uh, the first one is that uh, it said we need to re-examine and potentially redefine uh, the domain of civil engineering, uh, learn to, to, to include new comp competencies related to emerging technologies. I think this is true for all professionals. Uh, more systems thinking, right? They talk about the culture of innovation. I think this is true for all 
uh, engineering professionals uh, um, a more directed teaching of creative processes, right? And then uh, uh, also curricular flexibility. And I, I'm thinking because we are going to continue to have to innovate. Uh, and so that's the first point about changing um, uh, uh, the, 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 the nature of civil engineering. The second point they make is that we have to elevate professional skills to truly equal footing with technical skills, right? And they talk about things like communication, teamwork, uh, leadership, uh, uh, lifelong learning, ethical responsibilities, and so on and so forth. Um, and then third, they talk about, and this is exactly what it is, develop a diverse, inclusive, equitable, and engaging culture within the profession. Uh, and, and really that has got to you know, part with the, the types of problems we are solving today, just as they don't fit neatly within any disciplinary uh, bucket. Uh, they also cut across, uh, you know, in, in more, if you're talking about intellectual diversity and, and so on. Just, so that just uh, gives us strength. And that reminds me of um, the collective leadership uh, uh, framing that Mary was using, uh, using yesterday. And then and the fourth, they simply say um, uh, that we should hold more uh, national and international meetings and, 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 and dedicate resources to address the finding. To me, this is the innovation piece because they recognize that things are going to be changing. Okay, if you look at the environmental engineering, uh, 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 a report that came out of the National Academy of Engineering last year, same thing for on, on environmental engineering for the 21st century, you see it says similar things, right? These are the kinds of challenges it identifies. It says sustainably supply food, water, and energy, curb climate change to adapt its impacts, design a future without pollution or waste, create efficient, healthy, resilient cities and then foster informed decisions and actions. And three ways, uh, it says we need to expand the scope of environmental engineering, move from focusing on individual problems to systems-based solutions that address a broad set of issues. Uh, it talks about proactivity, not reactivity, right? Environmental engineers need to anticipate problems rather than react to them. I think that's one of the things we, we need to understand problem formation. That has got to do with understanding what has happened prior, right? Because if we are only solving problems, then we are, we are never leading. We just behind it, the problem, we try to solve it, we go. So no, we should be able to look ahead and say, hey, look, this is what has been happening. That's why we have the issues we have with climate change today. What can we do differently in the future, right? And then they talk about diversity and collaboration, similar to the uh, uh, civil engineering report. And, and, you know, so I think all these are very good. I would add also that we need, uh, and if you look at the engineering for sustainable development, this is from the UN, um, they are cross-cutting uh, cross competencies uh, for, for, for land. So the, the, the competencies one needs to, to implement those sustainable development goals. They talk about these things, uh, systems thinking, anticipatory, uh, you know, uh, strategic collaboration, critical thinking, uh, and then self-awareness that's reflected sort of metacognitive. They talk about uh, integrated problem solving, but one of the things they talk about, which I think is normative, normative, reflect on norms and values, negotiate values and trade-offs, you know. So it goes back to this whole value focus kind of approach. Be explicit about those. I think we can't afford anymore to say, hey, no, I'm objective, so, I, I don't talk about values, but values are embedded. They are just not explicit, right? So, and we have used those embedded values to do many great things, but they, we also 
uh, they've also brought us to some challenging positions. So let's make them explicit and, 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 and let's contribute to that debate because to me, that's how we also get on the table to move. Otherwise, we'll just be following and solving one problem after another. We'll never really get to the point of it. You know, Ajay, I, I love this. Uh, uh, I love the idea of making values explicit because there, there's a parallel that that I have heard um, some folks uh, say, and I think Mary was saying this uh, yesterday that, um, you know, we should also ask the question, uh, for example, or the parallel question of, you know, how do we make decisions? How do we lead? Well, I mean, you know, what sort of implicit set of, of rules or norms have we ins uh, subscribed to, right? Implicit in our processes and in our actions and the way we fund things, so on and so forth, and the technologies that we use that, you know, essentially what we were talking about on Monday with that, that create lock-in, right? Just sort of create this sort of long-term cycle, right? One of the issues is, is that, um, you know, as, as many of us talk about, um, infrastructure generally have very long lifetimes. So, you know, it's, there's, there's a potential for really big impact when we lock in a set of values that are, um, you know, sort of inappropriate for the future or, you know, work now, but may not work in the future, right? Because we're stuck with them. And, you know, as we often uh, have seen uh, as of late, you know, even if we want to get rid of that infrastructure today, you know, there's a backlog, there's no funding, there's, um, you know, an immense uh, set of challenges to make that happen. Um, you know, Ajay, you were talking about ASCE a lot, and I, um, I want to second kind of what you were saying and, and make uh, sure that the audience knows um, that ASCE is, is remarkably progressive in, in sort of how they are thinking about what infrastructure should do. You know, I think a lot of the points you're making, Ajo, resonate very well with uh, kind of what ASCE, American Society of Civil Engineers, have, um, have advocated. And, um, you know, there's, uh, um, there's a challenge that ASCE faces, and, and this is not picking on ASCE in any way, it's just, you know, recognizing that it is a professional society and it makes recommendations. Yeah. In order for those recommendations to become action, we need you know, practitioners, uh, we need academics to sort of advocate for it, to embed it in, in code, in law, in practice, and so on. And that sort of uh, scale jump, um, you know, or governance jump is, you know, one of the challenges that, that the organization faces. And, and that's why I think it's so important for, for us to sort of uh, get behind often, you know, a lot of the really great things that that organization is doing. Um, the, the other, um, you know, one of, we, we, may have, we may have talked about this, Ajo, but one of, the, one of the challenges I also think that our, our um, profession, sorry, that infrastructure face is, you know, again, if, if we all agree that infrastructure are made up of just so many different disciplines, right, but the, the, there is a really big power differential that is weighted towards civil engineers in particular, by the sheer fact, I would argue, and, and I think this is accurate, right? Somebody should run the numbers one of these days, that for every like one ecologist that is doing something related to infrastructure, there's probably like a thousand engineers, right? That are doing something related to infrastructure. And, you know, maybe that's just sort of a natural fallout of, uh, 
uh, or, or maybe a preferential fallout of, of you know, the, the ways that we have said, you know, infrastructure operate in particular ways or technology focused, therefore, you know, we need armies of engineers to do it, you know, something along those lines. So I think that there's this, this sort of power dynamic that's important to recognize that, you know, we are also, uh, I don't want to say working against, but, you know, need to work within, right? And, and I think a lot of kind of what you are saying has to do with um, how we change the, uh, the thinking, the, the, uh, the uh, approaches that this army of, for example, civil engineers are using, are bringing to the table when they approach infrastructure. Yes, I, I, yes, I see exactly what you are saying. Um, and maybe I agree with 95% of what you are saying. Um, maybe in numbers, we have more civil engineers, but I don't know, I mean, in terms of who makes decisions for funds to be allocated, do you think it's the civil engineers who are controlling? Aha, uh -huh. I, I think, and I think that that, that capital Financial capital is very strong. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So, so I think you know. In fact, that brings me to a point that I have been thinking. You know, the way maybe there's something like an engineer core that could be created, where engineers can also serve, uh, you know, uh, in 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 political or policy decision making positions at some point in their career. You know, engineers could choose to do that. Uh, uh, you know. Um, um, uh, to help with making making some of the big decisions on where infrastructure is in invested, and and I think and of course others as well. So I think this is really um, uh, and 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 you, I like that you talk about infrastructure professionals. I think it is it's, it it has to be an interdisciplinary effort. Absolutely, of course, made a little more challenging by the fact that we can't abandon the disciplinary. Um, uh, efforts at the same time because strong disciplinarity is what enriches interdisciplinary uh, thinking and action. So, uh, so it has to be all of the all of the above, I think. So, Ajo, uh, one more question for you. So, in the context of value-focused thinking, um, do you envision that there could be such a thing as a uh, value-focused engineer or value-focused engineering and, and sort of how would that be different than, you know, what we have today? Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. I think so. I think that could be, there is such a thing as a value-focused engineer. It's an engineer who recognizes that values under, underlie all decisions that are made, all institutions, the built and, uh, uh, environment that emerges from them, and the wealth and, and quality of life that 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 generates that's that, that's that type of engineer understands these things and so understands that the tools that we are using um, uh, you can't just take them at face value and look at them as black boxes. You have to question what are the underlying values, and uh, it may be that we need to retool. We need to modify some of the tools when we are. Uh, uh, you know, actively uh, uh, want to when we actively want to promote certain kinds of values in different contexts. Uh, I think that's a value-focused uh, engineer. It's one that is not afraid of it, 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 you know normative uh, 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 thinking. Understands that there are norms that uh, you know underlie all these tools and 
The fact that we don't talk about them does not necessarily make the tools objective. The tools can be objective if you are explicit about the, uh, uh, the values. And it's, I think such a value-focused engineer is also one who understands the past and how it influences the future. Thanks, Ajay. So um, I want to talk uh, more about education or hear, hear more about education from you. And I think we have a question on that. So I'll, I'll sort of table those questions there um, or, you know, my, my thoughts there. But um, one, one last uh, question, and you may have already answered this, um, but I've been asking this to the, the other panelists, uh, the other speakers. What, um, is there a, a book or a particular resource that you would uh, recommend to the audience? Okay, can I, can I recommend more than one or is only one? You can have more than one, I think that's reasonable. <laughs> okay, certainly uh, value-focused thinking by Ralph Keeney, a okay. path to creative decision-making, that's what's called Harvard University Press 1992. I think that's a great book. You know, some books are transformative. When you read them, you can think of before and after. To me, that has been one of those books uh, that has been transformative for me. And then I would also recommend Mega Communities. I just finished reading that book, How Leaders of Government, Business, and Nonprofits Can Tackle Today's Global ch Challenges to get Together. It's by Jeren Ksa, G-E-R-N, and C-S-E-R, uh, and others. And they're actually from Booz Hamilton, uh, Alan and Hamilton. It's a private sector, but they wrote this. And it, it really is talking about, I think you talked with Thad about some of these, the things he's talking about, about how you bring together just different sectors to, to tackle these wicked problems we have today, right? Uh, they, in th this book, they didn't include the academic sector as an entity in it, so they looked at private civic, uh, um, uh, you know, the private sector, the civic sector, government, um, and, and so on and so forth. But they didn't, I think we can include academics because they can bring something unique in there. But I think the model is going to be um, extremely useful as we, as we go forward. And of course, I think uh, people should also read Urban Infrastructure Reflections um, uh, 2100, yeah. which I am reading. I have read about six reflections and I think I'm richer for it. Thanks, thanks for the plug, Aja, and thanks for those other recommendations. Um, there are many people on the call with us today who contributed to that book, so I feel like it's uh, reasonable to to mention it. Um, you know, the uh, the book that Aja mentioned that Sybil uh, Darable and I put together was meant to uh, provide a platform where uh, infrastructure folks, not just engineers, could. Um, provide visions for uh, 2100 or, you know, a long time from now to sort of think about where, uh, help us think about as a community where we should uh, potentially uh, point the ship. So Ajo, uh, there's no more questions. So, uh, you know, any final thoughts, comments, reactions from you? I want to kind of leave, leave the last comment in your hands. Yes, well, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to uh, have this discussion. You know, I would really like this discussion to see if continue and everybody being able to participate because I'm very curious to hear what some of the folks on this call also think about some questions um, uh, that have been raised. Um, you know, I, I, final thoughts. I, I think, you know, if we take a historic look, a historical look at infrastructure, um, it has come a long way. So I think we, we, we really need to acknowledge that we have come a very long way. At the same time, um, you know, 
uh, we've done things in some ways that have also resulted in unintended uh, consequences. So uh, I think we have a nice opportunity here as there has, has been at various junctures you know, in the continuum uh, to really take a holistic look, look back, okay, in order to be able to move forward with lessons learned and look systemic, systemically um, at, at what we are doing, uh, start to think about values, making them more explicit. Uh, you know, and I know you and I, Mike, we've had conversations about complexity today. I see you didn't bring, you didn't, you didn't talk too much about complexity, but I think, yeah, we may, we may say that there's a lot of complexity in what's going on, uh, but the same way we may look at nature and, and, and nature is quite complex, but the outcomes, the values, I think we can see are quite simple, okay? When I wake up, the sun is going to rise. Then I'll get some sunshine. Or what if I'm not in, you know, they are, they are just quite simple. They, if you look at the, the, what is the intent? What, what does nature buy? So yes, I think maybe the means to the ends could be complex, but maybe the values we are all looking for are not so different. That's what I think. And uh, I think we have a, a very fine opportunity with the challenges we face to revisit that holistically. Okay, and start to drive uh, uh, our infrastructure uh, in, in directions that uh, we want to go. Because we are going to be having disruptions we don't like. And also disruptions, positive, pos potentially positive ones, automation, uh, connectivity, etc. Et and lots of things are coming at us. If we have our values very explicit and clear, then we can take them and be creative and put them in a, a, a sort of a, an arrangement that we want to have and drive our infrastructure in, the, in those directions rather than be buffeted by things. So they are going to come from all directions, right? But if our values dominate, then I think we have a stronger uh, a, a platform with which to move forward. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ajo. Appreciate your time and your thoughts on the topic. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. All right. Have a good day, all. Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.